Good morning. If you would like to go ahead and take your Bibles out, open them up to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 18. I am so thankful to have the opportunity to, to teach this book in the adult Bible class on Wednesday evenings. And I'd say if you haven't, if you haven't been able to attend those studies, then I, I'm confident in saying that you are missing out. Now, that has nothing to do with my teaching ability. In fact, it's far from my teaching ability, but rather from the amazing message that we receive, the wonderfully encouraging message that is proclaimed throughout the book of Revelation. It is, it is so useful to, to the Christians of that day, and it is so necessary for the Christians of this day as well. And while I am trying to complete this book by the end of March, we have, we have three chapters left and and I think four Wednesday nights uh, to, to do that. So I, I think we're going to make it. But, but to do that, there is unfortunately some things that just simply must be overlooked uh, that we are not able to fully flesh out in class. And so I hope to, to speak about one of those things that we, we really kind of skipped over in chapter 18 in our sermon this morning. I want you to look in verse 18, or chapter 18, and read with me verses 1 through 5. It says, After these things I saw an angel... Excuse me. After, the, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. I want to tell you a story about a man who took his daughter to the city dump. And he instructed her while there to, to look around. Tell me what you see. He gave her a notepad and a pen and said, just mark down some of the things that, that catch your attention. And so as they walked around the dump, she noticed uh, toys. She saw some things that, that she maybe would have liked to have played with, dolls and, and uh, a, a play kitchen. Um, but these things were were obviously dilapidated. They, they, they were deteriorating and they were, they were dirty. She also saw appliances that they, they even had in their house, refrigerators and dishwashers. <clears throat> and, and then on the way out, they noticed a whole line of cars, cars that had been crushed and compacted and flattened down. And the father paused to tell her at this time, he said, Look at the car that we're driving today, a rather new car. I want you to recognize that everything in life eventually is going to end up like this dump. It's going, our, our new car is going to become old and going to break down and, and eventually uh, at some point it's going to, to end up like this, crushed. The, the things in our house that, that are nice and clean and new are eventually going to be old and dirty and worn out. And that was a lesson for his daughter to understand. Nothing in this life is permanent. And it should remind us as well that eventually everything is going to pass away. Now the world doesn't believe in that. 
to the world, life is just going to continue to tick on. They don't believe in the fact that it will eventually end. They don't believe in a final judgment. And sometimes you find Christians who, who live as if they don't believe in a final judgment. Or at least they have, they have forgotten about it or not thinking about it very often. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 18 reminds us it indicates there there is going to be a judgment of the unrighteous. But this morning I want to focus on the way God responds to that indicated judgment with this phrase. He says, come out in verse, in verse two, uh, 4. Now what I want us to know, note about this is one, this is not the first time God has said this. This isn't the first time that His people have heard this call. Flip back over to the book of Genesis for a moment. In Genesis chapter 12 and in verse 1. It says here, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. God, if you recognize our, our, our call here, tells Abraham, Come out. He says, get out of your country, get out from amongst your family, and go to a place that I will take you. Now, on the board, I've put up here that he was called twice. Now, we, we read this and say, now wait a minute, I don't see where Abraham was called twice. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, that God tells him to leave his country and his family and to go. So to understand that, let's, let's see how Stephen, in the book of Acts, now, you can hold your, your hand here in Genesis if you want to, because we'll flip back to it in a moment. But in Acts, in, in chapter 7, Stephen is giving a, a defense of the gospel. He's, he's speaking to those around him, and he begins by saying in verse 2, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. That's Genesis 12, verse 1. But look what it says in verse 4. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved, that he is God, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So what we see is he made this phrase to him to get out of the land. And then Abraham gets up and he goes. But he doesn't go all the way. He doesn't leave Haran. He doesn't even leave his family. In fact, his father comes with him. Notice in, in chapter 11 of Genesis, I told you to hold your hand there, verse 31, it says, Terah took his son Abraham and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife. And they went out from there, from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, and they dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Abraham goes with his father at the call of God. He leaves the, the land that he was living in, but he doesn't completely leave. And he waits in this land until his father dies. And then we have again a reminder in Genesis 12 that God says, I have told you to come out, to leave. And then Abraham goes into the land. Now we can speculate why Abraham didn't go the first time all the way in. Why did he wait for his father to die? Why did he stay in Haran before going in? The truth is we don't know. But we can imagine maybe there were some reasons. Maybe his father, uh, was. It, it, this was uh, very important for him to, to live out the rest of the, his days with his father. Maybe he knew his father was not going to live much longer. But we simply just don't know. 
But yet Abraham is told to go into Haran, to come out of, of your land and to go into the promised land. So we have God calling there for His people to come out. <coughs> A very similar account to this is seen in Genesis chapter 19 where Lot receives the call to come out. Read with me there, verses 12 through 17. It says, Then the men said to Lot, have you, any, have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city? Take them out of this place. There's, there's our call. There's the, the command that we're looking at. He says, come out of the city. Take them out of the city. For we will destroy this place, in verse 13, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his son-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wives and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters. And the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside of the city. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that, they said, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere uh, in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Now, I want us to look at how many times in this passage, we have our command repeated again and again. You have in verse 12, he says, take them out. Come out of the city. In verse 14, Lot speaking here. Lot says to his son-in-laws, get up, get out of this place. In verse 15, you have the angels once again speaking to Lot saying, arise, take your family, get them out. And in verse 16, we read that they brought him out. They set him out. Verse 17, again, they brought him outside and said, escape for your life. Over and over and over again, the message, come out of the city. At least, at least six or seven times, not including Lot, we have that message repeated to, be coming, to come out or to be taken out of the city. And just like Abraham, we see that Lot doesn't immediately comply with that to come out. In verse 15 it says, after going to his sons, and he tells them the message, and they, they think he's joking, it says in verse 15 that he has remained until dawn. And even in verse 16, after they come again and they say, arise, get up, and get out of the city, he's lingering. They have just told him, we are going to destroy the city. You need to come out. What better reason does he need to come out? And yet we find Lot hesitating, lingering around the city. And then we find that it's God's mercy and God's compassion in verse 16 is what saves Lot. The angels grab him and his family and take them out because they are not responding to that message to leave the city. So again, we might look back and say, why did Lot not immediately leave? Okay, I understand your, your son-in-laws. Let's, let's go to them. Let's take the message to them. But after they kind of laugh it off, why am I still hanging around the city that God's angels have come to me and said, the city is going to be destroyed? <clears throat> again, 
We could speculate. We could think of all sorts of things. I have found that the Bible offers better commentary upon itself than I can ever hope to offer. So let's look at another passage. Turn over to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we have some commentation on the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the lifestyle of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Ezekiel 16, in verse 49, Ezekiel speaking, uh, speaking to, to those Jews who are in exile, speaking in reference to, to help them to see the life that they were living, he speaks this about Sodom. He says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Now we know that Sodom and Gomorrah were, were also engaged in many lasciviousness and, and, and sexual activities that were, were unbecoming of anybody. But Ezekiel points out, this especially about them, that they were arrogant. They had an abundance of food and they were idle. The New American Standard says they were arrogant, had abundance of food, and lived in careless ease. I believe Lot was infected as a member of this city was infected with this lifestyle of careless ease. I don't have anything to worry about. You remember whenever he came to the land and there was fighting between him and Abraham, and Abraham said, you pick where you want to go. He looked around and he went, that place looks like it's where the, the, you have the best grass. That's the best place for my herds. That's where the city is. That's where I want to live. That looks like something that's good for me. And I believe this had infected Lot's life. That he looked around at what the city provided him and went, this is going to be hard to do. Come out of this where I have so much, I have careless ease. And again... That can be speculation, but we can know that from the Scripture that that's the lifestyle in which he was surrounded in. And then you will remember, the angels grab them and take them out, and then they give them this warning after they bring them out. Don't look back. Flee to the mountains. Don't look back. And so Lot and his daughters flee to the mountains. They don't look back. But his wife, his wife turns her back back towards Sodom. And we recall she was turned into a pillar of salt. I find that interesting because if you go into places like Deuteronomy 29 and verse 23, if you're taking notes, you can mark these down. Deuteronomy 29, 23, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9, both of these describe Sodom and Gomorrah after the destruction that God rained down upon them. And both of them described them as salt pits and salt flats. And it's almost as if God was saying, if you won't come out, I have already taken you out of the city because I, I gave you the message and you, you waited and you lingered. But if you won't come out, if you won't tear yourself away from the city, then you can share in the judgment of this city. Sodom and Gomorrah was turned into, a, into salt and so was Lot's wife who could not separate herself from that place. Another time in which God does this is in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8. We have the, the Israelites in Egypt. And it says there when, when Moses comes to them, he gets this instruction from God saying, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord... I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you 
from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. We read this, and you almost can read this expecting God, uh, or, or, or as if God is expecting His people just to say, okay, God's going to bring us out. Let's go ahead, let's start packing our bags. Let's get ready to go, because God is coming and saying, I am bringing you out. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that before any of the other accounts that we read in Exodus happen, God goes to His people first and says, get ready to come out. But what happens in verse 9? Moses spoke this to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Before God asked Pharaoh, let my people go, he went to his people and said, come out. Get yourselves ready. I'm going to bring you out. And his people said, no. His people said, I don't think you can do that. Because of their despair, their, their broken spirit. They were so without hope that even this message from Moses saying, this is what God is going to do, it didn't, it didn't affect them. But notice that that didn't deter God. He's made a promise to Abraham. He's going to see that promise through. That promise is unconditional in the sense that I am going to keep my end of this promise. And so he's going to bring them out of Egypt. And so we see him continue on with this, saying, Now, Moses, go to Pharaoh, and I'm going, I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt. And this happens yet again in, in, over in the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> In Jeremiah chapter 51, near the very end of the book of Jeremiah, verses 45 through 47, uh, the message here says, My people, go out of the midst of her, and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord, unless your heart faint, and you, hear for the, uh, and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land. A rumor will come one year, and after that in another year a rumor will come, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Therefore, behold, the days are coming that I will bring judgment on the carved images of Babylon, her whole land shall be ashamed, and all her slain shall fall in her midst. Now that should sound familiar to us, because that's the exact language that we read in Revelation 18. This is where it comes from. This is what the, the, the author, this is what John is looking back to when he is inspired by God to record those words. He's talking about what, John, what, what was said to, to the Jews living in Babylonian exile. God tells them, Again, come out of Babylon. My people, go out of the midst of her. In, in the uh, book of Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 11, he says very similar things. Depart, depart, go out from here. And once again, once again, we find as you look through history, God's people are rooted where they're at. Some had prospered in Babylon they had begun to, to build lives for themselves and to grow financially and even politically. Some of them were doing well within the kingdom of Babylon. And, and God was sending this message to them. You need to come out. Because those who would remain would experience the same condemning judgment reserved for the nation of Babylon. 
So as with Abraham, and as with Lot, and as with the Israelites in slavery and in exile, God repeatedly gives the command, come out of her. Don't participate in her sins. Don't be included in her judgment. So in other words, God is saying separate yourselves from the world. Or we might say it separate ourselves from sin lest we become like the world, lest we be condemned with the world. And so how should, in Revelation, back over in Revelation 18, how should they do that? How should the, the recipients of this message, they, how should they keep this command? Should they come out of her physically and spiritually like Abraham and Lot and Israel? God said come out of the land. They, they were physically taken out of the land. We talked a little bit about this in class. That would be pretty difficult. That would be pretty difficult today because this message is still applicable to us. When we see a, a nation that begins to exhibit the characteristics of, of something like Babylon, something that is worldly, something that is unrighteous, our call is to come out. So maybe we look around us at America and we say, wow, you know what? America is doing some things that Sodom and Gomorrah were involved in. Some of the, the, the lasciviousness of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, America has got itself involved in. Ezekiel said that they were arrogant. Okay, check. They were full of food. Check. They had careless ease. Uh-oh. What does this mean for us? Do we need, we need to, there have been some take the stance. We've got to leave America. We're going to go to Canada. Well, guess what you find in Canada? The same things. Because the world has been filled through its entirety with worldliness. And so we should not expect this command to come and say, you need to leave your physical location. That's not what He's telling them. But rather, He's telling them spiritually, you are to come out of that. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read Paul talking about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's talking about those who are involved in sexual immoral sins and the way that they are to respond to them. <clears throat> In verses 9-10, through 10, he said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetousness or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He was telling them, I'm telling you to separate yourselves from the world. Not to take yourselves out of it, but not to be of the world. <clears throat> So physically coming out is not going to be answered. Spiritually coming out is the answer. But how? How are they to spiritually come out of Babylon as it's described in Revelation 18? How are they to do that? And I believe Revelation 18 gives us some hints towards that. Gives us some ideas of what he was talking about there. Because what they were being called, told to do the same way that Abraham was being told to do and the same thing that Lot was being told to do is you need to separate yourself from the trust that you have in these things. Abraham, you're in your father's land and living with your father's family. You need to separate yourself from that and trust in me, not in them. Lot, you're in a city that is full of, of evilness and wickedness and you need to separate yourself from that city. Don't trust in the security that that city brings you, but trust in me. And that same call is given to us. Read with me in, verse, in, in Revelation 18 and verse 3. It says, For the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kingdoms of, or kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through, the, through her abundance and luxury. The, the word picture, the illustration 
that, that God chooses to use here to describe the relationship that the world had with Babylon was intoxication. It says that they have become drunk. They have drunk of her. And so that should give us an indication. And if we're going to understand what he's talking about, we need to look at it in the light of how he's describing it. If they become intoxicated with Babylon, what effect does that have? Well, what effect does that illustration used to describe it have in real life? What effect does intoxication have? It removes the desire to resist. <coughs> when one becomes inebriated, they are more susceptible to poor decisions, whether those decisions be financial. Someone comes up to somebody that's, that, that's had a few too many, and it's real easy to say, you know, I, I, I bet you this or I bet you that, that, that you can't do this or that. I'm going to make a little bit of money off this guy because he's not in his right mind. Someone comes up to, to someone who's, who is intoxicated and makes sexual advances towards them. They're more likely to commit into those advances than they would be if they were in their sober mind. And so intoxication removes the desire to resist, but it also blinds us to our own insecurities. I'll always be reminded, whenever I think of, of alcohol and intoxication, a, a friend of mine, the way he described it, he said, alcohol is like liquid courage. He said, we used to go out and we used to go four-wheeling, we used to go ride our four-wheelers, and those guys that that they would get to the bottom of those great big hills and they'd say, oh, I can't do that. I'm not gonna, that's too dangerous. I'm not going up that. But, but you put a few in them and next thing you know, they're, they're ripping and running trying to get to the top. They're full of liquid courage. And he always said that scoffing of them because those are the same guys that end up getting hurt, the same guys that tear up everything they got. But so oftentimes, that's exactly what alcohol does. Alcohol fills us with, with an, a, an arrogance, a pride in our own our own abilities and it removes from us our, our, our own insecurities. It makes us unaware of our limits and in places too much confidence in our abilities. And then the last thing I want to point out is it numbs us. It makes one not able to feel pain and not able to feel sorrow. You've heard of those who are, who are drinking their sorrows away. In fact, there was a time uh, not... not too terribly long ago that if you're going to have a surgery done, you're going to have some, something done that's going to be painful that it wouldn't be unheard of to give the person a little bit of alcohol, to numb the body so that they would, they would not feel as much of the pain. That's what alcohol does. It removes the desire to resist. It blinds us against our own insecurities and it numbs us. And so being intoxicated with the wine of Babylon similarly would remove the desire to resist the temptation of an immoral relationship with the world. It would blind us of the only true security that we have, and that is with the God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, the Son, and it numbs us. It numbs us from the feelings of fear of the coming judgment. That is the, the, the idea that he's looking at here when he says they are intoxicated with the wine of Babylon. And who is hurt by this intoxication? I want you to notice, look back in verse 7. It says, in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am no widow and I will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The first casualty of drinking of the wines of Babylon is Babylon herself. She is going to feel the judgment of this, she is going to be hurt by this. 
Uh, in the immediate moment, we talked about this in class, in the immediate moment of the writing of the book of Revelation, we understand that, that Babylon is referring to Rome. Babylon is referring to the nation in which the, the children, uh, uh, or the church, excuse me, the church was, was being persecuted by, was, was being, um, being subjected to, to emperor worship and to deification of man. We, we can understand that. But we also need to see in relationship to us today that Babylon reflects any nation that chooses to turn its back on God and to focus upon itself, to, to let itself be the authority and how it runs itself and how it controls itself and doesn't bend to the will of God. And so the first person that is hurt by the wine of Babylon are those that, that are Babylon themselves. But the second one in verse 9 are the kings and the rulers. They, are, they will weep and they will lament, it says. And then verse 11 says, the merchants of Babylon, they are going to mourn. And then verses 17 through 18, the mariners around Babylon will cry out. And we start to get a picture painted here. Who's going to be affected by the wine, by drinking the wine of, of, of Babylon? Everyone who is involved is going to be affected. Everyone is going to feel the sting of drinking the wine of Babylon if they are involved with that. No one escapes the consequences of drinking in the securities and the comforts of the world. And thus we see the importance of God's plea in chapter 4. Come out. Don't be involved in that. And even listen to the language that he uses in verse 7. Back in verse 7, speaking of Babylon, it says, I sit as a queen... And I am no widow, and I will not see sorrow. <clears throat> what we see here is this, this amplified self-confidence. I would say it goes beyond self-confidence, in fact, to say it's self-reliance. I am. I will never. I don't need anything else but myself is the message we have here. And we think that's what God's calling them out of? Well, how could a Christian ever have this attitude? Certainly that's not, that won't be the case. But turn back to Revelation chapter 3. I can't imagine that as John is recording this, he doesn't have this group directly in his mind. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, written to the church of the Laodiceans, written to the Christians in Laodicea. In Laodicea. He says in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You see, that is why we must separate ourselves from Babylon. Because if we don't, we will be conformed to the world. We must come out. We must, as Romans 12 say, be transformed by, by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12, verse 2. That means we need to renew our thinking. Renew our thinking on our security. Renew our thinking on our trust. Renew our thinking on our dependence on God and not ourselves. Again, we can't leave this world. That's not what we're talking about. But we must not be of this world. We must separate and we must, some, must come out. And so for, for the youth here, for our young children that are here tonight, this morning, excuse me, how do we do that? 
how do we separate ourselves and come out? And it begins by, by asking ourselves, well, what kind, of, what kind of friends do we have? What kind of people are we going to associate with? Are we going to so associate ourselves with people, with friends who might expect us maybe to use bad language, to curse, to lie, to, to maybe cheat in school, to talk bad about a friend, maybe to talk bad about somebody else? We're going to pick on them and make fun of them? Do our friends, is that where we get our security? Do we feel important because the friends that are around us? God's message to us is come out of that. Don't be a part of that. Realize that there's security and being a friend with Him. What about for, for us in our jobs? What about for our, us adults? Do we ask ourselves in our jobs, do we, are we required maybe to, to lie, to bend the truth a little bit, to maybe go out and to drink or to behave in, in some manner that doesn't reflect the holiness of God? Do our jobs require us to neglect our families? Do our jobs require us to put our families in, in a, in a second-rate place instead of, instead of putting them first place in our mind? Does our, our jobs require us to neglect the church, to neglect the assemblies of the church? We need to ask ourselves, where does our security lie? Does our security lie in that job? Or does it lie in God? You see, God's message, it applies again. We need, we need to come out of that. One man said, any culture that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Sin is normal, righteousness is strange. That is worldliness. If righteousness seems strange to us, the things that I've just spoke about, if that seems strange to us, then that's an indication that we have already begun to become infected or intoxicated with the wine of Babylon with conformity with the world. Come out of her. Don't participate in her sin, lest we be judged like her. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17 through 17 said this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Do we trust more in the world or do we trust more in God and in Christ? Revelation 18 teaches us that judgment is a sure thing. Judgment will come. As our song picked out, there is a great day coming. A day of judgment. Will you be ready? Will you be prepared? To end this lesson, I want us to focus on one last point. Notice what God did not say in Revelation chapter 18 and in verse 4. He did not say, come out of her, you pagan infidels. He said, come out of her, my people. Judgment is always relative to the Christian. We need to be thinking about judgment. We need to be living constantly in regards to judgment. It was God's grace that brought Abraham out of the land of Ur and into the land of promise. And it was God's mercy that brought Lot out of Sodom and into safety. And it was God's compassion that brought the Israelites out of slavery and out of exile back into freedom. His grace, His mercy, His compassion. These three things are still extended to you today. 
The question is, will you come out? If we can help you to come out of this dark world and into a brilliant light, the light of, the God, of God, light of the Father. Or maybe you realize that you have once done that, come out of this darkness and into light, but somehow in these days past, marched right back into the kingdom of Satan. And you realize you need the prayers of the saints here. You realize you need encouragement and, and the, uh, to be held accountable for yourselves. And you want that from your brothers and sisters here. Then won't you please consider the words of, 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 of God here. And if you've never done so and need to become a child of God, won't you consider the words of God here and come out. Do that by coming forward right now as we stand and as we sing.